Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Well, many of you have likely had a crisis of faith, a time when you began to wonder, do I really believe this gospel, a time when you were wrestling, if you really believed in Jesus, and maybe that is where you are here right now. Maybe you walked in this morning wondering, do I really believe this? Is Jesus really true? Am I really a Christian? This is all getting really weird. Maybe it came because of grief in your life and suffering where you wrestled with, is God really present and does God really care for you because you're going through this suffering? Or or maybe it's a time when, when you were being challenged by unbelievers who thought you were foolish for believing what you do. Or, or maybe it's a time where you looked at unbelievers and you saw that it seems like their life is going great and everything's fine for them and they have all of these things and these joys and, and these pleasures and, and you have little of it. They seem to enjoy life while you struggle. Or, or maybe it was a time of great temptation And there was something that you desperately wanted and you knew it was contrary to God's word and you began to wrestle with, do I want this temptation or do I want what God says? I am certainly no different. I have had seasons where I have had a crisis of faith. One of the times I I wrestled the most with this was my my first year in, in seminary. At that point, I had been in full-time ministry and regularly teaching the Bible for 11 years. I went to seminary late. I was 34 years old. And here I was at seminary preparing to be a senior pastor. The, the, the doubts and the, and the wrestlings that came to me were unexpected and they were deeply challenging to my soul. Now, it wasn't the seminary that put those doubts in your head. For those of you who think, well, you shouldn't have went to seminary then. No, that, that isn't where they came from. In fact, I was deeply impacted by the love of God's word and the love for people that the seminary I was at had. It was beautifully attractive. Rather, the doubts and the wrestlings came from within my heart and within my soul and mind as I wrestled with things. Because I had to come face to face with this question. I am about to give my life to preaching and to teaching and shepherding a flock on the foundation that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way to get to God except through him. Do I really believe that to such an extent that I am willing to give my life to that? A lot of people don't realize this, but... To to get an MDiv in seminary is nearly the equivalent of of obtaining a PhD in the local universities. The weight of these things felt so different than when I was an associate pastor. And it turned into a very difficult time in my life as I would walk from our little two-bedroom apartment on campus to class and then back from class to our apartment. And my thoughts would be dominated as I walked these paths with these questions, do I really believe the gospel to this extent? 
Am I certain that these things are so true that I would be willing to go to jail for them and leave my family at home should that become where our culture goes? Am I so certain of them that I could stand beside the casket of a, of a church member and comfort a grieving family and say with assurance, that person, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father is with Jesus for eternity? So certain that Sunday after Sunday, I could get in the pulpit and proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I kept waiting for a time of definitive assurance, and it never came. What did come was a moment of faith. I was walking back from from class to our apartment one late morning. I was deeply troubled, and I was wrestling with these things. And, And a line from an old hymn came into my head, which is why it's so important to sing good biblical songs, by the way. The line was simply this, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And this this assurance just came over me and this understanding of deeper faith and an understanding that I did not have to have all of the answers and God wasn't going to solidify everything for me in a nice, neat, intellectual package. It had to be enough that Jesus died for me. And I rested by faith in that beautiful truth. And from that day forward, the doubts and the wrestlings in that way went away and never returned. Doesn't mean I've not had other seasons of wrestlings, but in that regard, it has not returned. Now, here's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is honest about reality. Scripture is honest about the wrestlings that are in the human heart. Scripture gives us room to wrestle. And so does Jesus. And when we come to John chapter 6, we encounter real people who are really wrestling. And so Tyler was gracious enough to read our text for us this morning. But let me begin with verse 60. Let's look at that again. Now, I've been preaching through the book of John at our our church. I had just finished John chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago. I preached this sermon sermon at our church back in August, so I'm hoping I can remember half of what I said. So we'll, we'll see. So verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before? It is his spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 
Now, I don't have time to review all that's going on in John chapter 6. You can go back and, and read that uh, this afternoon or, or throughout this week. It's a fascinating chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. John chapter 6 is dear to my heart. But John chapter 6 begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is really more like twenty to 25,000 people. The people are excited they're loving Jesus. They're loving what he is doing. And the crowd that has followed him just continues to grow and to multiply. But when Jesus rejected their political aspirations for him, excitement began to wane. There's a, a movement and a wave of grumbling and complaining that moves throughout the crowd. Then Jesus said, he was greater than Moses because Moses only gave them bread from heaven, but Jesus himself was the true bread from heaven. And then he said they must feed on him for life because he is the bread of life. This caused massive confusion and fierce debate among the crowd. But instead of simplifying and clarifying and Jesus saying, well, no, 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 hold on. Let me explain. Let me back this up a little bit. He instead ramps up this language, which you heard Tyler read a few minutes ago. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, if you hear those words, and you're like, oh yeah, totally get that. You're being dishonest. <laughs> These are hard words of Jesus. And Jesus then repeats that offensive language three more times. So the first point on your outline, if you have an outline or you're writing it down, is simply this. Will you go? For we read in verse 60 that many of his disciples, when they heard these words of Jesus, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you. Now it's important to know here that John uses terms in different ways throughout his gospel and, and the term disciple here is being used in a more broad term. These are the disciples who at this point were following Jesus. This is not referring to the 12 disciples, which we will see later, but rather these are people following Jesus at this time. We don't know exactly how many, but we know the crowd began at over 20,000 people. So it's safe to say there's a lot of people at this point, and it seems like Jesus's ministry is just exploding. It is taking off. But these last words of Jesus are difficult and offensive and Jesus knew in himself they were complaining and grumbling. And he says, does this offend you? Now that word offend is a strong word. It means to stumble and to be caught in a difficult dilemma. And the dilemma before them is, is the claim of Jesus to be greater than Moses. Jesus not fulfilling their messianic ideals and the exclusive claims of Jesus. That's the dilemma in front of them in John chapter six. But then it is greatly amplified when Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Now they would have known Jesus was not speaking literally. They knew that they weren't that far off, 
but they did not know what he meant. And so they saw his language as grotesque. It's offensive. Jesus, why would you talk like that? That's disgusting. Jesus, then speaking to their difficult dilemma, asks them this question, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Now, I think what Jesus is, is saying here is, is if my claim to be greater than Moses offends you, and if my claim to be the bread of life offends you, and if the, the language of eating my flesh and drinking my blood offends you, what will you think of me who claims to be the Messiah writhing on a blood-soaked cross. If those things offend you, how much more will me, who says he is the giver of life, dying in agony on a blood-soaked blood cross offend you? You see, Jesus has already spoken in John of ascending, but it's always first in the context of the cross. In John 3, verses 13 through 14, as, as he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, the path of ascension for Jesus to heaven had to go through the cross. Ascension doesn't just mean rising into heaven for Jesus, but rather beginning first at the cross. You cannot speak of the ascension of Jesus without speaking of the blood-soaked cross. And this concept of the Messiah being on a cross was so foreign to the Jewish concept of Messiah it is still rejected today. The notion that the Messiah would die on a cross would have been deeply offensive. And their offense and dilemma over Jesus' words would pale in comparison to him hanging on the cross. Now Jesus goes on in verse 63, and, and states, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now, when Jesus says who, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, I don't think he's referring to we can earn our salvation through works, although that could certainly be implied. Rather, Jesus, I think, is continuing to speak to their dilemma because they are thinking merely in physical terms. They wanted Jesus to do more signs. They wanted him to provide more manna from heaven. They heard his words and wondered how his flesh could give them life. Again, in verse 51 of chapter 6, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus is telling them that, that the flesh, the things of the earth, the physical things, they can't give life. Manna from heaven, even if he did provide it, would not give them life. 
his words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood had to mean something more than physical because the flesh can't give life. Rather, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. It is God at work in a person's heart through the Holy Spirit that life comes. So how does that life come? Well, Jesus, I think, answers that as he goes on and says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now, this is really an astounding statement that really bears tracing out. It's one of those statements of Jesus that we can easily miss if we do not pause and consider it. Jesus is claiming here that his words bring spiritual life. And in this, Jesus is making an absolute claim to be God. You see, in Deuteronomy 8.3, we read this. So he humbled you, allowing you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 47, for it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. In Jeremiah 15, 16, we read your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And then in the famous chapter on The word of God in Psalm 119, we read, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the word of God was seen to bring life. And now here is Jesus saying, my words are life. They're equal to the life-giving words of God because Jesus is, as John says in John chapter one, the word became what? Flesh. The words of Jesus are life and they produce life when they are received and believed. The words of Jesus are the words of God. Again, in John three thirty four, we read, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. You see, friends, this, this demands a response from not only the Jews, but also from us. How do we view the words of Jesus? How do we view the word of God? This brings deeper understanding to what Jesus said earlier about feeding on him as the bread of life. Because one aspect of what it means to feed on Jesus as the bread of life is to read and understand and believe and memorize and meditate on the words of God. It is to obey the word of God. Friends, do you understand that that what we have here in our hands is life? It's life. The word of God and the words of Jesus are one and they are life. D.A. Carson writing on this said, one cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. For truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus's words. Just as we need bread and water for survival, so we need the word of God 
for spiritual survival. We must see reading God's word and being in God's word as essential to life, just as eating and drinking is essential to life. And sadly, many Christians just don't have that perspective. They will go weeks without reading God's word, but not four hours without something to eat. Many Christians are, are, are spiritually malnourished because they simply will not feed on God's word. And then they wonder, why does my life go like this all the time? They don't feed on God's word. I want to draw something out for you from Deuteronomy 8, the, the verse that I read earlier. Deuteronomy 8.3, so he humbled you, allowing you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, when we start talking about trials, it's complicated. We should not be simplistic about trials that come in our life. So don't hear me being simplistic about it. But did you notice that in Deuteronomy 8, God will bring trials into our lives to teach us to feed on God's word. And so when you encounter trials in your life, one of the first things you should do is begin to consider, am I feeding on God's word? And if I am not, I better run to it. God often will bring trials into the lives of Christians to teach them to live by God's word. I often see this. And yet many of the people that I see in this boat are so busy trying to fix their trials and escape from their trials, they miss what God is trying to show them. I remember one individual, and I could recount several, that I was working with who needed to learn to feed on God's word, needed to learn to submit to God's word, needed to learn to immerse themselves in God's word, and they just wouldn't do it. And I would meet with them week after week. And it would seem like God would just bring trial after trial into their life. And a new trial would come up and I would think, okay, they're finally going to see it. And instead, all I would see is a, a digging in of the heels and, and, a, and a working. I'm going to get out of this trial. I'm going to fix this trial. I'm going to get this thing solved. And in the eyes of the world, they probably would be seen as, as a strong person, a hero. And yet, they would not submit to God and his word. And they eventually left the church and appear to have left the faith. Friends, when trials come, instead of scrambling to fix them first, run to God's word first. Think about this for a moment. The resolution of your trial will not bring life. The word of God brings life. Do you long for spiritual maturity? Then feed on God's word. Do you long to have children that walk with the Lord? Then feed them God's word. 
Do you long to have a good relationship with the Lord? Feed on his word. The word of God is life and it is life-giving. But Jesus says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. They don't believe. John then writes that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Notice throughout this text, the sovereignty of Jesus. He knows grumbling hearts. He knows complaining thoughts. He knows who's gonna believe. He knows who's gonna betray. Jesus is not a victim of the circumstances of life. He is sovereign. He is in control. He knew all of it. And then he reiterates why they don't believe, which he has done throughout this whole chapter. Look at verse 65. Therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. They don't believe because God has not drawn them. God hasn't given them faith. God hasn't called them. We read earlier in verse 37 of chapter six, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Likewise, in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, God is ultimately sovereign over salvation and salvation is due to his work, his calling us to himself out of his love for us. Now, there's a mystery here that works perfectly fine in the mind of God. And, and, and sometimes we try to solve this mystery and in so doing, we forget that if we actually could solve it, we would be God. But there's a mystery here in that God sovereignly calls people to salvation and each person is responsible to turn to Christ and believe. It's two sides of the same coin. We can't neglect one side nor the other. And we then read, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and and walked with him no more. They left. The massive crowd that had been following Jesus, thousands of people, begins to dissipate. They walk away, shaking their heads. Jesus We thought he was maybe going to be something. They're disillusioned with him because he did not meet their expectations. Jesus had redirected them away from their thought patterns and way of living, and they didn't want it. F.F. Bruce stated this, what they wanted, he could not give or would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. And so they left because they realized following Jesus was far more comprehensive and far more sacrificial than they wanted to do. Jesus' demands and what he has called them to were simply too offensive. I remember a couple of years ago, 
working a man with a man who, who came to our church and he was interested in Christ and he was interested in Christianity and he had turned away from, from a, a lot of sin in his life. And I met weekly with him, walking through the gospel with him. And he liked it. He loved the church. He loved the community he had found. He loved the support he had found. He liked the relationship that he had with the leaders of the church. And, and one day as we were meeting in my office, he said, I, I think I am a believer now and I'm ready to be baptized. And I said, that's great. Let's keep working through these things. And we came to the part of the gospel where we addressed giving up of yourself, denying yourself and living for Christ. Mark 8, 34 through 35, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And we began looking at the things in his life that he needed to give up. And friends, let me tell you, it wasn't alcohol. It wasn't sex. It wasn't drugs. He did not want to give up bitterness. He did not want to give up control. And he walked out of my office that day and never stepped foot in our church again or in any other church. To give those things up was just simply too offensive to him. I like what William Barclay says here, because I think he's right. To this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes, not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. I've certainly found that to be true. In over 20 years of ministry, People don't walk away from Christ because they're like, I just don't understand. I just can't wrap my head around. No, they don't want to give up certain things of their life. Well, let's move on. Look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. So this brings us to the second point on our outline this morning. Will you stay? Will you stay? Will you go or will you stay? We can just picture this. The crowd is dissipating. They are walking away. They are shaking their heads. They're mumbling to one another. And the disciples are standing there in shocked wonder. What is going on? And Jesus turns to them and he says, do you also want to go away? Now, what is fascinating here is as this crowd is leaving, Jesus is not out there. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me explain more. No, he's content to let them walk away. As one commentator stated, Jesus was content to let the religious consumers turn away. 
He's more interested in focusing his ministry on the few than the many. The few who truly believe and the true who, few who truly follow. This is an important principle that many churches in America today and worldwide neglect. Far too often the focus on so many churches is on the religious consumers instead of the true disciples. And the church begins to mold and form itself to the religious consumers instead of to the disciples. And Jesus lets the consumers go away in order that he might minister to the true disciples. Now it's important to note here, Jesus is not asking them because he's not sure. He's not wringing his hands and going, oh, all these people are walking away. Are you guys gonna go too? No, we've seen throughout the chapter, he knows all. He is not wondering what's going to happen. Rather, here's what's so beautiful. He is giving them the opportunity to wrestle. Do you wanna go too? Sadly, when the crowd leaves, all that's before them is death. But the 12 are still standing there. Now picture, if you can think with the wide angle lens of the gospels with me, what must have been going through their minds. They wanted to see a large ministry develop They desired greatness. They wanted to see great things. They had notions of the Messiah bringing in the glory of Israel and and casting off the oppressive chains of Rome. Just the night before, they thought ministry was finally getting going. It's just been this little thing for these weeks and now all of a sudden there's over 20,000 people here and Jesus does this amazing miracle and they want to crown him king. And they saw the veracity of the crowds as they, they all scramble to cross the Sea of Galilee just to find Jesus again. Finally, they had to have been thinking, this is taking off. This is what we signed up for. Here we go. And now they're standing there, watching it all dissipate and go away. Thousands of people walking away, shaking their heads. And they look at Jesus. (laughs) Jesus isn't upset at all. He seems perfectly content. And he even asked him, do you want to go too? And they're sitting there wrestling. The people leaving. The words of Jesus that they didn't really understand either. Wondering about what is the future of following Jesus? Why is he talking about blood? They're wrestling. And finally, Peter pipes up and says these words that have been a deep comfort to my soul for decades. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, Peter here isn't saying that he understands everything. Peter's not saying this, I got this, Jesus. We, we understand it all. We know exactly what you mean. We're still here, God. Don't worry. No, all throughout this conversation is this strain of confusion. There's doubts. He doesn't understand it all, nor do the rest of them. They don't grasp his words and they don't really grasp for sure what is going on and questions are are racing through their minds, but they know this. There's nowhere else to go because only Jesus has the words of life. The crowds are gone. Opportunities for glory gone. Do you realize that that 25,000 people is a significant group of people to challenge Rome? That power is gone. But these men can't leave because they have come to believe in Jesus. They have come to believe they can have eternal life through Christ. Their knowledge is limited, but Peter goes on to say, we know a little bit more. We have come, verse 69, to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The word order there is extremely significant. Peter doesn't say we know and now believe. He says we believe and now we know. Their belief led to their knowing. It's a significant movement right there where faith leads to relationship. They don't have all the answers, but they know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the answer to life's greatest problem. And what is life's greatest problem? How can I be cleansed from my sin and restored to God? That's the greatest problem of humanity. They know there's no place to find hope apart from Christ. And though the questions are there, the questions remain, their doubts are still present, they will continue to believe. Leon Morris states this, no one who has come to know Jesus' life-giving word would ever forsake him. When a man once knows Jesus, knows there being in the true sense of knowing, none else can satisfy now, we would think that Jesus would be, all right, you got it. You nailed it. Good job. Now, let's move forward in ministry. No, his response is so strange to the, our mentality. Did, uh, verse 70, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? Why didn't he say, you nailed it. Good job. What kind of a response is that? Well, once we fit it into the entire context of the chapter, it makes perfect sense because Jesus has continually been teaching that salvation originates in God the Father. And it's a gift from God. And though these 12 remain, though these 12 are here, they can't take credit for it. They are there because God is at work in their hearts. Though they believe, they can't take pride in it. They owe their understanding to God who has drawn them and Christ who has chosen them. 
Now, this isn't the same incident as the other gospels record where Peter confesses Christ, but it is similar in many ways. Matthew 16, 15 through 17. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. What is Jesus doing there? You're blessed, but you can't take pride in it. You didn't figure it out, Peter. God revealed it to you. We also get a glimpse here of two things here. The mysterious ways of God and a very sobering warning. Look at verse 70. Did I not choose one, you the 12 and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the 12. The mystery here is that Jesus chose Judas and Judas would betray him. Judas, the one through whom Satan personally worked. And though Judah is re, Judas is responsible for his heinous crime, it was part of the sovereign plan of God. That's a mystery that we will not figure out this side of heaven. But there's also a deep, sobering warning here. And here's the warning. You can be this close to Jesus and still go to eternal damnation in hell. That close to Jesus and still go to hell. Proximity to Jesus does not save you. Being at church every week will not save you. Friends, I one time sat with a couple in their late 50s, early 60s. They were sitting in my office. They'd been in church their whole life. And I said, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? And this was their response. We've been married for a long time. How did they miss the gospel? They missed it. Be warned here, being in ministry doesn't save you either. We're only saved by believing in Jesus and giving ourselves to him. And so friends, where are you? Where are you? Will you go or will you stay? Are, are you this close to Jesus, but you have not surrendered your life to him? Or are you one who doesn't have all the answers, but you have cast yourself upon the Lord? Maybe you haven't walked away from Jesus like the crowds here, but you also have not surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you're like some people that I see who are trying to have Jesus and the life they want. And that just isn't gonna work. If that's you here this morning, cast yourself upon Christ. It's your only hope. 
Cast yourself upon Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself wrestling, be comforted. You're not alone. The disciples are with Jesus physically and are wrestling. They're wrestling. But take note of their conclusion. Where else would we go? To whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's many things that can drive us to a crisis of faith, as I said earlier. Wayward children. The pressures in the high school classroom. The pressures on the college campus. The tragedy that strikes unexpectedly. The diagnosis of a long-term illness. These are real and difficult things. They really are. And it can be tempting to walk away from Jesus. It can be tempting to think maybe there is another way. But where else would you go? Where else can you find hope? Where else can you find joy, peace, assurance, forgiveness of sins? Where else could you find eternal life? In the middle of the 20th century, two young men joined forces in ministry. They were a powerful duo and became known as the Gold Dust Twins. This is the duo that started Youth for Christ and really started the evangelistic movement in the 20th century. One, however, rose above the other. He was seen as the more gifted speaker. He was a brilliant orator, a winsome speaker. His name was Charles Templeton. The other gold dust twin was good, but he paled in comparison to Charles. And they went all over Europe, preaching the gospel and holding evangelistic crusades. And then they returned to the U.S. where they continued to preach. But Charles took center stage. He was given regularly scheduled slots on NBC and CBS to preach the gospel. That's how much our culture has changed. He preached to massive crowds across the country. The other gold dust twin continued to preach as well, though with less skill, it seemed. He was overshadowed by Charles. The other gold dust twin was Billy Graham. In 1957, the very gifted Charles Templeton declared he no longer believed in Jesus and would step away from ministry and later wrote a book entitled this, Farewell to God, my reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. Billy Graham tried to reason with him and, and to win him back, to plead him to come back to Christ, and he would not do it. And near the end of Charles's life, Lee Strobel had, the inter- had an interview with him. The conversation was nearing the end when, when Lee asked him this question, how do you assess Jesus at this point in your life? His manner, Charles' manner, suddenly softened. The sharp tone he had had became warm. He spoke about Jesus like one speaks of an old friend. In my view, he said, Jesus 
is the greatest human being who has ever lived on the earth. His voice cracked with emotion as he uttered these words, I miss him. Tears began to flood his eyes and he began to weep. His shoulders began to rock back and forth and the only sound in the room was his gentle crying. Finally, he composed himself and adamantly waved his hand and he said, enough of that. And he was done. He determined to keep his path and died shortly after that. He chose to leave Jesus and tried to find hope somewhere else, tried to find peace somewhere else, and he never found it. I miss Jesus, he said, but he wouldn't return. He joined the crowd here in John 6 and the many in the centuries to follow who turn away from Jesus. But there are some who joined the disciples and say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and we have come to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Friends, we do not have to have all the answers to life. We do not have to fully understand all that happens but we can cling to the one who does. Because after all, where else would we go? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that your word is life. We praise you that you in your kind and gracious mercy have chosen to save us. We praise you that it is your kindness that has brought about salvation. Not our works, not anything we have done, simply your kindness and your grace and your mercy. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came and availed yourself, not just to public humiliation and mockery, but to the humiliating death on a cross, the suffering and agony that we cannot even relate to in order that our sins might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored to you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. And God, I pray for those in this room who are wrestling right now and are in a crisis of faith, would you comfort their hearts? Would you encourage their souls? Would you give them faith to trust in Jesus? And I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who are present but, but have not surrendered their life to you. Would you give them faith to cast themselves upon you and trust wholly in you? And Father, I pray for we who sit like the disciples and say, we don't have all the answers, but, but we know Jesus does. And we know that his words are the words of life. Would you encourage and comfort us as well, Lord God? Strengthen us in Christ. Keep us faithful to Christ. Grow us in our knowledge of Christ. Help us cling to your word and be men and women, boys and girls of your word to walk in your ways. And we ask these things 
dependent upon you and your mercy and your kindness. And we ask them in Jesus' name, amen.